that uh, arise out of our study. And I'll bring a recommendation or some recommendations as well as transition team that we put together to the elders, to the deacons, and ultimately uh, you'll know what that is. The fourth stage is strategic planning where as a church and especially as a leadership team, we'll answer the questions, who are we, where are we going, and how do we get there? So we'll be looking at, at vision. I truly believe that the vision of a church is located within the elders of the church. So when a pastor comes, he comes to fit the vision that God has given the church. And the last stage is I'll be coaching a pastoral search uh, team as they look for God's man. But I wanted you to just have an update where we are. And today I want to talk with you about one of the most wonderful words in all of the New Testament. It describes the way we are to live and think. It's a Greek word. It is the word parousia. It's not pray text, but parousia, which means, everybody say parousia. Parousia. It's a word that could be translated confidence, freedom of speech, openness, courage, boldness, fearlessness. And it's a word that comes right out of the birthplace of civilization in ancient Athens, and it describes the ability of someone to stand in a public assembly and speak their heart, speak their mind openly, freely, confidently, frankly, boldly, especially in the face of opposition. And the New Testament writers picked up this word and they use it to describe our relationship with God. For example, Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then with confidence, there's the word, Parousia, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Or this passage, Ephesians chapter 3, Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness, that's the word, parousia, and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So we are invited to come before our Heavenly Father boldly, confidently, and open our heart to Him. Speak about those things that are on our mind because our standing is secure with God. We are in the hands of God, and that is not a fragile place to be. And we need, go, we need confident people. There's not a lot of boldness that we see uh, today, especially in Christian churches. A few years ago, I was in West Africa, and I met with four single women missionaries. One was a, a middle-aged a single woman, the only Western, Westerner in her area. She said in the shade, it's 106 degrees all year long. Um, she lives in an area where women are trampled on and diminished. And she's the only Westerner. And she, in the area where she lives, the region, there is a witch doctor, she said, who has targeted her with demonic oppression. So it's, a, it's an area filled with Satan worship, demonic worship. And I said, well, are you ever afraid and she said, yes. She said, sometimes I wake in the middle of the night and the presence of evil is so strong, it's all I can do from bolting, from running out of my house. I said, well, how do you handle that? And she said to me, I remind myself, God called me, he is with me, and greater is he who is with me than he who is in the world. And I thought, this is a spiritually dangerous woman. This is a brave heart, and I want that kind of boldness. So where does it come from? 
Well, Paul in, first, in Philippians chapter 1 describes confidence or boldness or a sense of courage as tied to the master passion of our life. Some of us can recognize and identify the master passion of our life, our purpose in life. Some of us are still kind of working with that. But once you know what your master passion is, it kind of helps the way you view situations and helps the way you make decisions. For example, if your master passion is to make money, then you look at every situation with the eyes, a set of eyes that, that say, how can I use and make, take advantage of this situation to make money? It produces boldness. Uh, if your master passion is, as a football coach's passion has to be, to win games, then you will be bold in putting together projections and plans. Uh, and Paul tells us his master passion. Look once again at Philippians chapter 1. He says in verse 20, It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, he says, and die is gain. He says, my life is about honoring Jesus and advancing his cause. It is about magnifying Jesus. And I can't think of a greater purpose for any Christian. And I'm not talking about missionaries or preachers or church leaders Average, ordinary, plain vanilla Christians. I can't think of a greater purpose in life than to say, I live and I'm prepared to die for honoring Jesus, magnifying Jesus, and advancing his cause. And what Paul says is this. I want to magnify Jesus. And there are two ways to magnify something. You can use a microscope or you can use a telescope. You put a, something, a slide under a powerful microscope, and it makes something that is small look large. And a lot of people look at Jesus these days and consider him small and inconsequential, not to be considered. And Paul said, I want, the, I want my life's, my, I want living in the body, I want, when people are with me, I want Jesus to look large to them. I want my life to be like a microscope. And you can use a telescope, and a telescope is used to take something far away and bring it close. And Paul is saying, I want to magnify Jesus in my life like a telescope, take someone that others might think is inaccessible and far away, and I want to bring him close. I want Jesus to be honored and magnified in my body. And he says, to do that, it requires parousia. It requires boldness, confidence, sense of freedom of speech. So the question that I had sitting with those four women missionaries, and the question today is, where do you get boldness? What produces spiritual confidence and courage? Well, Paul says this. He says, I'm in prison. Again, here I am. I'm not doing missionary work. I'm not on a journey. I am sitting chained to one of the praetorian guard, one of the 9,000 elite bodyguards of Caesar. These are the ultimate power brokers in Rome. This is the most powerful group. They can set up and take down Caesars at will. They're far more powerful than the Roman Senate. And he says, I am sitting here every day chained to one of these men. So put yourself in his, in your, in your, in his place. He's lost everything. He's lost his job. He, he's chained. He's immobile. He's not sure whether he'll be released or be executed. 
And he says, this is where I am. And then he says, I don't know if I'll live or die. I'm not sure what's going to happen. I may be released. I may be executed. And then he says, on top of all of that, there are these people out there that are preaching like it's some kind of a contest, and I'm the competition, and if they can just make me look small and feel bad, they'll win. Maybe there's money, maybe there's fame involved, but their goal in life seems to diminish me. They're preaching out of false motives. And I know it's hard for us to believe Christians would have wrong motives today. But Paul says, I'm sitting in prison. I don't know what's going to happen to me. I've lost everything by worldly standards. And on top of Got a medical person? While they're helping there, can, let me lead us in prayer. Can I do that? Let's just pray. Lord, we pray that your spirit will come now. We'll give wisdom. We'll give poise. We'll give leadership. We pray for this one, that you would uh, do what is necessary, do what is needed. So we ask for your mercy and your help in Jesus' name. And everybody says, amen.
Why, I pray she is okay. I really do. And you're all looking at me thinking, I am glad I'm not you right now. So if you can, <laughs> put yourself in Paul's place. Sitting in prison, chained up, you're not free. You're not sure whether you're going to be released or be executed. And on top of that, there are people that should be supporting you who are criticizing you, making fun of you. How do you respond? Well, look what Paul says in verse 18. He says, what then? And that's a really hard pass, or a really large part to translate it. It's two little Greek particles, T, gar. Some of the translations say, what then? Some of the other translations say, what does it matter? I think the best translation is to say, so what? I'm in prison. So what? You think that will stop God? You think my prison, being in prison, stops him? He says, no. In fact, what is happening is God is using my imprisonment for the advance of the gospel. So remember, Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles, and his goal has always been to get the gospel to as many Gentiles as possible, which meant, in his mind, he's got to get to Rome the center of the Roman Empire, and if he can just get to Rome, he'll be able to influence thousands, perhaps thousands upon thousands of people for the sake of Christ. But his question is, how do I get to Rome? And if I get to Rome, how will I contact the power brokers of Rome? How will I infiltrate the power structure of Rome? And it's like God says, how about if I chain them to you? This is almost humorous. Paul says, don't you love it? They're chaining people to me. They think I'm their captive. They can't get away. He says, think of it, 24 hours a day, every day, I am chained to the future leaders of Rome. I get one of these guys with me every six hours, and they can hear me pray. They can watch me write letters from, of, of the New Testament. I can answer their questions. They hear me preach. And he says, one by one, I'm wearing them down, and if I'm here long enough, I may lead all of them to Christ. He says, as a result, the entire palace, verse 13, the entire palace is buzzing about the fact that the only reason I'm here in prison is because of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And he says in verse 14, there are people in the church who see me and see what God is doing, and they're thinking, well, if God can work through Paul in prison, I'm not in prison or in chains, maybe God can use me. So he said, the brothers in the church are gaining fresh encouragement to share the gospel through this. So he says the gospel is being proclaimed. So what? I'm in prison. God's using this for the one thing I want in life. You know, God is a master of taking what we think is a failure, what we think is a dead end and a tragedy, and turning it for good. I was teaching earlier this year in a church through the life of Joseph and came to that last portion that we're told about Joseph he had been betrayed by his brothers. He had been falsely accused 
of sexual abuse. He'd been thrown into prison. He'd been forgotten in prison. And through this amazing series of circumstances, God raises him up to be the prime minister. And the very brothers who betrayed him and sold him into slavery now are afraid of what he will do. And he says this to them, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good, for the saving of many people. In other words, in the very same event, Satan is working, evil is working, and God is working in it. So Paul says, I'm in prison. So what? It's being used for the advance of the gospel. And he says, I don't know if I'll live or die. So what? He didn't know what would happen to him. But he knew if he was alive, it was all about Jesus, loving Jesus, becoming like Jesus, being with Jesus, serving Jesus, sharing Jesus. And he says, if I die, it's just more Jesus. It's a win-win. It's a win-win. He says, if I live, I glorify Christ. I bring others with me. And if I die, I graduate to the ultimate experience to glorify and enjoy Jesus 24-7, 365. I won't have to sleep. I won't have to slow down. I won't have to fight temptation. I won't have to guard against Satan. Just ever-expanding, ever-increasing joy in the presence of Christ. So he says, if I die, so what? If I live, it's a win-win. I can't lose. And he says, all those people out there who are preaching from wrong motives, so what? He says, the gospel is so strong, it is changing people's lives, even if those preaching are doing so from wrong motives. You see what is happening here? Most of us live life reactively. When things are going well, we feel good. When things are going bad, we feel bad. When things get bumpy, we get nervous. When things are going bad for Paul, he feels good. How do you explain that? Well, between what happens to Paul and how he responds in that gap is a set of beliefs, a set of convictions that produce this boldness we're talking about. It's interesting. You put two people in the same situation and they respond differently. Have you noticed that? Two people look through prison bars. One sees mud. One sees stars. There's a pastor named John Ortberg out in California in Malibu who was in an ice cream shop with his wife, Nancy, and they're standing in line to get ice cream and Tom Cruise walks in. Anybody know who Tom Cruise is? Tom Cruise walks in, gets in line, and his wife turns and sees Tom Cruise and says, that's Tom Cruise. That is Tom Cruise right here. And John is saying, well, just, just settle down. So they get their ice cream, they walk outside, and she notices she doesn't have her ice cream cone. So she walks right back inside, smiles at Tom, and says, I, I didn't get my ice cream. And Tom Cruise looks at her and says, lady, you put it in your purse. Two people, same situation, two different responses because of what they believed. And Paul says there are three beliefs, three convictions that drive my purpose in life. There are three beliefs, three convictions that produce parousia, courage, boldness, confidence. So I want to give them to you, and I'll make you a promise. You won't even have to write these down. You will not forget these. In fact, you'll remember them the rest of your life. There's a, not a week that goes by that I don't think of these three beliefs that Paul enunciates 
and applies in this passage. Here's the first one. I'm going to ask you to after, say each one. I'm going to ask you to say it with me. Life is difficult. Go ahead and sit. Life is difficult. Sometimes dinner burns. Sometimes the car breaks down. Sometimes your boss is cranky. Sometimes your wife doesn't understand. Sometimes a kid needs braces and there's no money. And sometimes a pastor preaches a bad sermon. Life is just difficult. And sometimes it's really, really difficult. Sometimes you don't know if you're going to make it through. Sometimes people who love their families can't find jobs. Sometimes people walk away from their families. Sometimes people that you love get sick and die. Sometimes your marriage disappoints. Your children rebel. And you have to live with physical handicaps. Sometimes you deal with depression so, for so much of your life. Things you didn't choose. Things you would not choose. Sometimes the people who love you most deeply wound you most deeply. Sometimes churches struggle and there's not enough money and there are not enough volunteers and people that we love leave. And sometimes apostles go to prison and they don't know if they'll live or die and their best friends turn against them. Life is just difficult. And the crazy thing is we think that's strange. We say, well, when the car gets repaired and the neighbors move and the economy turns around, things will get back to normal. Friends, difficult is normal. We live, in a, we live in a broken world. Life is just difficult. Here's the second conviction. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And that's not saying it glibly or easily. This is written by a man in prison facing death who has lost everything by worldly standards, including his friends. He says life is difficult, but Jesus is Lord. And friends, when we say Jesus is Lord, we declare the truth that has held the church together for 2,000 years. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church because Jesus is Lord. He's Lord over the Praetorian Guard. He's Lord over Caesar, though Caesar doesn't know it yet. He is Lord over sickness and failure and struggling marriages. He's Lord over divorce and addiction and aging and debt. He is Lord over children who get in trouble and churches that struggle and physical handicaps and accidents and depression and death. He's Lord over every tribe, language, tongue, and nation. He is Lord over Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. He is Lord over every congressman, every senator. He is Lord over the Supreme Court judges. He's Lord over every celebrity, every business leader. And he's Lord over the house where your address is at the top. He's just Lord. People don't recognize him, but he is Lord. And then Paul uses that little phrase, so what? You see it on the screen. Life is difficult, and sometimes it's really difficult. And Paul says, so what? Jesus is Lord. And this is written by a man who has gone through hunger and trouble and persecution and famine and danger and sword and oppression and injustice. He's faced all of that, and yet he says, Jesus is Lord. And what does that mean? It means he's able to take the worst tragedies and somehow turn them around for the sake of the gospel. I was just thinking as these missionaries were up here and sharing their stories, and I really hope you'll go out and see each one of them. I hope that they're not standing there alone at the end of the service, that people around them, pray for them if you would. Pray for them. Ask questions. They'd love for that to happen. The man who had the greatest impact on missions, at least in the 20th century, was found face down in a bloody river with a spear in his back. Life magazine read an article 
and their byline was the shame of young American men dying at the hands of people who don't want them there. And the widow of that man who died, along with four others, Elizabeth Elliot, wrote Life magazine and quoted Jim's diary. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliot did more for the cause of Christ as a tombstone than he ever did as a preacher. Life is difficult, but Jesus is Lord. We had a, an accident in the Dominican Republic. I think I may have described it. All of us were airlifted out, flown back to the United States. Four of us on stretchers. My wife's vital signs were lost uh, twice on the plane. Her right side was totally shattered from this automobile accident. I broke my neck. All the kids were, were injured. Brought back to the United States in the hospital. And uh, my wife was in the, laying there in a the hospital bed. And she had tubes coming out everywhere. She could hardly speak. Uh, barely conscious. And our eight-year-old daughter walked in with her grandfather, my wife's daddy. And the nurses had said, now, honey, when you go in and see your mom, you got to be real careful because she, you, you just don't make, her, don't make her cry, don't make her sad. Be, be real careful because this is, this is not a time for you to whine and complain. So my little daughter, Sarah, walks in. She's eight years old. And she talks to mommy for a while. And Ruthie's looking at her. She's got tubes out of her nose, out of her mouth. And then the nurse looked at, a discerning nurse looked at my daughter and said, honey, is there something you'd like to say to your mama? And my daughter said, Mommy, is Romans 8.28 true? You know, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him who are called according to his purposes. Is that true? And my wife nodded. It's true. And my year old daughter would be bopping out the room. That's what she needed to know. Life is difficult. Says Paul, so what? Jesus is Lord, and he's able to take the worst of circumstances and turn them for the sake of the gospel. So say those with me so far. Life is difficult. So what? Here's the third conviction. Therefore, I will rejoice. Say that with me. Therefore, I will rejoice. Now say all three, would you please? Life is difficult. Therefore, and Paul says over and over, I, I will rejoice. I will. In verse 19, he talks about being delivered from deliverance, not from prison, deliverance from shame, deliverance from fear. Paul says, I am going to rejoice because the gospel is being advanced through my suffering. And he says, I can't lose in this life. If I live, it's Christ. If I die, it's gain. And the gospel is even so powerful, it's being it's being effective even though preached by people with bad notice, motives. He says, it's fulfilling my master passion in life, my purpose. So I will rejoice. There's a scene in Braveheart, the movie Braveheart, where William Wallace is but spending the night before he is to be tortured and killed. And he prays this prayer. God, help me die well. When the pain comes, help me not to renounce freedom. Death before dishonor, I want to be bold when the axe falls. That's the Apostle Paul. That's his attitude. You can trust God, he says. 
He will come through. It may not be quick, and it may not be easy, but he will finish what he starts. He will come through for you. The times may change. He will not fail you. In fact, Paul is so optimistic about the future that in verse 20, he says, my eager expectation and my hope is that in no way I'll be I'll be ashamed, but that as always, so now also here in prison, Christ will be magnified in my body. Those words, eager expectation, are a, it's, it's a word in the language of the New Testament that some scholars think Paul made up. It's only used twice. It's made up of three words, neck, from, lift. It's the idea almost that he's standing on tiptoe looking over to see what God might do. Paul wakes up in prison with this expectation, eager expectation of what God is going to do. He wakes up like that. Do you wake up like that? Someone said there are two kinds of people, people who wake up excited and people who hate those who wake up excited. (laughs) You know, three convictions, three convictions that drive Paul's joy. It's fascinating. You find this throughout the scripture. John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you have, may have peace. Which one is that? In me you may have peace. Yeah, Jesus is Lord. In the world you'll have tribulation. What is that? Life is difficult. Take heart. I've overcome the world. Which is that? You're going to rejoice. Yeah. Boldness is one of the favorite words of the New Testament writers. The world of the early church was so filled with persecution and challenges and difficulties and anguish and in sorrow in Acts 4, the apostles Peter and John are brought before the religious authorities. Um, They are criticized. They are condemned. They are told not to preach anymore and they respond with boldness. And it says in Acts 4 that they realized these were uneducated men, but they had been with Jesus that word uneducated is the Greek word idiotas. Guess what word that comes from? They condemn, they condemn them as, as idiots. So they leave the presence of the religious leaders. They go back to their church, to their group, and they pray a prayer. And that prayer is found in Acts 4, 29. They prayed this. Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, O Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were shaken, gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I think some of us need to break out of some deeply ingrained habits of timidity and fear of what other people will say and do. I really think we need to stir each other up to take more risk for Christ, to share Christ more. I think some of us just need to, be, need to be set free from anxiety about ruffling feathers, offending someone by speaking about Christ. I think we just need to lift high the banner of radical, God-centered, confident, courageous, risk-taking boldness. You say, well, I guess that's me. What do I do? I want to make three suggestions from this text. First of all, 
Find a spiritually bold person, get up next to them. Someone who is courageous. Someone who is confident. Because fear is contagious. Discouragement is contagious. Suspicion is contagious. And boldness is contagious. So, Like these people who drew courage from Paul sitting in prison and God's using that to advance the gospel. You get up next to some people and say, well, how do you handle, how would you handle this situation and what would you do here and see if boldness will not leap into your heart by being around someone who is bold. So who, who, who does that for you? Who encourages you? Who inspires you? Here's a second suggestion. I think some of us need to find a new way of thinking. And I suggest you we start using the words, so what? Face a difficult situation in your life right now. You're trying your best to obey Jesus. Just go ahead and say, so what? And run it out to find the worst possible thing that could possibly happen. You're working with someone who doesn't know Christ. You're feeling the Holy Spirit prompting you to speak about what Jesus has done in your life, to pray for them, to share the gospel, but you hang back because what will they say? What will they think about me? Well, just ask the question, so what? What's the worst thing that can happen? Am I going to let fear of what they think keep me from obedience to Christ and from sharing the best news in the world? So what if they speak badly about me? You've got a relationship that's not working. And the Holy Spirit is prompting you and saying, you need to right that relationship. You need to reconcile. You need to find a way to get get with that person and, and open your heart to them and hear what they have to think. But you hold back. Well, what if they... What if they walk out and slam the door? What if they yell at me? Just say, so what? Am I going to let the fear of a door slamming in my face keep me from doing what the gospel tells me to do and rebuild a relationship? Your wife wants to have a few words with you about your attitude. You look your spouse right in the eye and say, don't you say, so what? We just need to, we, we need to have this mindset of Paul. Life is difficult, so what? Jesus is Lord, and in that I will rejoice. I'll make it the last suggestion, and it is this. We don't know the end of our story. We know Paul was in prison. Some scholars think he was executed. Some think he was released. But whenever he was arrested and executed, that was not the end of his story because every time a Gentile trusts in Christ, Paul's story goes on and continues. Some of you live in a really difficult place right now, and I want you to know you don't know the end of your story. You just don't know what God might and can do. You don't know. Horatio Spafford is a wealthy real estate developer in the city of Chicago in the 1800s. Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked over the lantern. The city burned. A lot of real estate burned. His real estate burned. And he went from wealthy to flat broke. His son died. And so he took his wife and four daughters and sent them on to the UK with a plan to meet them there in the UK. And somewhere out at sea, an English ship collided with the ship his family was on, and it sank. His wife somehow made it to Cardiff, Wales, and from Wales sent a telegram back that said, Saved alone. Horatio Spafford forded a ship, and somewhere out at sea, perhaps in that very area, 
he took a piece of paper and he wrote, when peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you've taught me to say, it is well, is well with my soul. A lot of people know that story. Not a lot of people know the rest of his story. Grief drove him insane. He moved to the Holy Land, to Palestine, and began to preach that he was the return of the Messiah. And the man died in an insane asylum. But that was not the end of his story. Because every time someone hears and sings this song, and they draw fresh courage from it, his story continues. And you don't know the end of your story. You just don't know. What you do know are three things. Say them with me. Life is difficult. Therefore, I will rejoice. And knowing those things creates spiritual boldness. In fact, I'd like us to sing that song, draw courage from it as his story continues. Let's stand together and let's sing.
see the day when out in the lobby after the service we're in little groups and we're talking to each other and the only question is how is it with your soul how is it with your heart when someone says it's not really very good right now that we stop we just pray for them we love on them and we point them to the hope that we have in Jesus may the grace of God and the love of Jesus and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of us today and this week. And if you agree with that, say amen. Amen. God bless you, folks.